From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Dr. Trace Pickering is an educational entrepreneur who serves as the co-founder and executive director of Iowa Big, an innovative public school in Cedar Rapids with a focus on community engagement and project-based learning. Trace, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it's great to be here, Garrett. Thank you. So the first question I like to ask people is, what led you to this education industry? Why is this something that you wanted to spend your time and a significant portion of your life solving? Yeah, great question. I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Um, uh, pretty disengaged student. I uh, went to school in a small town in Iowa. Um, had no intention uh, no aspiration to go beyond high school. My dad was a John Deere dealer. I thought I would just maybe take over that business. Pretty poor student. Um, got into high school. All I really, the only reason I went to high school was because I loved basketball. I, I lived and breathed it. And the only way I could play is by showing up to school and doing well enough to pass. Um, and then about my junior year, um, when I was on the playing on the varsity, my basketball coach, uh, for some reason, took a an interest in me. He was a great English teacher. And over the course of that last two years of high school, uh, it was, I was like his personal project. He wanted to make sure that I could see what he saw in me, the, the potential and the abilities. And so I slowly started to accept the picture that he had of me and see it. And so, um, that was a profound experience, and that led me to go, well, he's an awesome guy. Uh, he's a great teacher. I'm going to be like him. So I went to the college he went to. I majored in English and American history like he did, uh, which I, I like those topics anyway. And I wanted to be a basketball coach like him. And so I did that. Uh, that's why I got into education. I wanted to be able to change kids' lives like he changed mine. Uh, and within... I, I couldn't have articulated it this way at the time, only in retrospect can I kind of put it together. But it dawned on me in my first couple of years of teaching that from 8 to 3.30, the kids were bored to death. I had to, it was like pulling teeth to get them to do anything, to get engaged. And honestly, it was kind of, it quickly got boring for me because I was just basically um, mimicking what my teacher had, had done. And then at 3.30, I saw the very same kids, myself included, full of energy, full of passion, full of life as they went out to the fields and the courts and the stage uh, to, to do their extracurriculars. And very quickly, I'm like, there's, there's something wrong with this picture. You know, we, why do I see these two very different types of kids and even feel it in myself? And so that really kind of diverted me away from aspirations about being like a division one basketball coach to questions about education and why we do what we do. And then so through a series of uh, uh, serendipity and some really fantastic mentors and opportunities, um, I got to really think about changing my paradigm of education. Probably started with Bill Spady and outcome-based education, honestly. Bill talked about paradigm shift and uh, I recognize that traditional system isn't broken, it's obsolete. And why are we continuing to try to make an op work, improve an obsolete system is just bonkers to me. And so that I love that point. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I like to say uh, it it worked well for its time. It achieved the goal, fuel for the industrial revolution, which is yeah. which is simplification, but it did its job. It's just yeah, that job doesn't even have to be done anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was a beautiful system for what it was designed to do, and it's still producing what it was designed to produce. You know, so I always tell people it's kind of like uh you know, the games change from you know improving the car so it improves the ride and it goes a little faster we're trying to get to the moon right we can't take you can't you, you can't reform the model t into a rocket to get you know it's just it's silly and so but anyway that led me down the path and um each opportunity in education presented a new you know a new kind of place to go and um the the time just happened to be i was in the right place at the right time uh, with the context in the right place to be able to start Iowa Big uh, nine years ago now. What was that context? Let's dive that into that a little bit. What? How did Iowa Big become a thing from an idea to something that actually exists in the world? Yeah, at the time, uh, so in the early two thousands, I was uh, I worked for an area education agency, an intermediate service agency that most most states have. Uh, and I was charged in, with innovation, and so working with districts, trying to help them, you know, think differently about things. And then the, our city had the at the time, although I don't think it's fifth anymore, the fifth worst um, national disaster in U.S. history. Uh, we had a massive flood in 2008 that essentially wiped out um, um, about 10 square miles of our city, um, and. Uh, wiped out our downtown it was there was water 12 14 foot high running through our downtown and so what what happened with that is obviously we had to start from scratch essentially and the kind of leaders in the community fought for a while about let's just clean the streets up get the shops back open and go back to what we were and another group of community leaders go whoa wait a minute we have an opportunity to re reimagine our community because we're a dying agricultural rust belt kind of city. We have to revitalize. Thankfully, that voice won out. And so as entrepreneurs started pouring into our city and we tried to revitalize and improve our arts and entertainment and rethink how we wanted to do business in our community, uh, the topic of education came up. And one of the community leaders uh, had known me for a long time, knew about my passions and interests, and asked me to be a community builder for his organization. He he was CEO of the local media company. And he said, you got to change the conversation about education. We're all worried about which high school's number one on the AP list and which high school's best and how many valedictorians we have. He goes, it's wrong conversation. We got to get off of that. And he knew I could help do that. So we did that um, unsuccessfully for quite a while. Um, and what we found is we would ask people, you know, what, what do high schools need to be teaching? You know, what, what do people need to know, do, and be like? And we'd get these beautiful answers that I've gotten thousands of times, right? Collaborative, uh, work with diversity, uh, understand that through failure you succeed, um, being resilient, having a passion and an interest, uh, knowing how to think on your feet, knowing what to do when you don't know what to do next. And then I'd ask them, okay, wonderful. So what educational things are you advocating for? Uh, Higher standards, tougher standards, fire bad teachers, fire bad administrators, uh, kill the union, strengthen the union, longer school days, longer school years. And I, this litany of things, I'm like, none of the things, 
that you're advocating for have a snowball's chance in hell of producing what it is you say you, you care about. And uh, my co-founder, Sean Kernally, was working with me at that time. And we're like, how do we, what do we do, right? They, th- there's a huge disconnect between what they want and what they're supporting. And Sean came up with, uh, he just shouted out one day, we need to do a Billy Madison project, right? The Adam Sandler movie. He said, we had to do a Billy Madison project because we had been talking about the fact that all of our histories are fiction. And he's like, well, certainly all of our history about our high school experience is certainly fictional. Um, let's put them back in school. Let's take, so we came up with the idea of let's take community leaders, put them back in high school as students for a day, and then have these conversations and see what happens. So we got 60 community members um, over the course of five or six months to go out and spend a day as a student. I worked with seven principal friends to make that happen. And they just got a normal schedule. It wasn't a, it wasn't a marketing show or a sales pitch for the principal. Just give them a schedule. We, we want them to be in traditional teacher classrooms, innovative teacher classrooms, but just give them the experience. And then we'd spend a half day debriefing with them. And uh, over consistently over those 60 people, their experience was kids are bored. Teachers are working really hard to, to get, make the kid, you know, get the kids interested. And they recognize how ridiculous it was to separate all the subjects out into English class and biology class and algebra one and sociology. They're like, that's, they're like, it never dawned on us that that was the wrong way to do it. That's just the way we've done it. They're like, how stupid is that? Because if you decontextualize content, it's, it gets really boring fast and it's super hard to teach. So they're like, those are the three things that we saw. I'm like, fantastic. It's beautiful that you saw that. So we asked, then we asked the question, what do you need to know, do, and be like to be a successful adult and citizen today? They generated that beautiful list that they always do. We said, what, uh, how many of those things on the list did you get to actively work on as a student when you're day in class? And like, almost none of them. Outside some of the communication stuff, none of it. And it's like, all right, so design the school you'd have if you could have what you wanted. What would it do that would actually produce the things that you say you care about? And again, three consistent themes across those 60 people. Focus on passion. Show me a passionate person. I'll show you a resilient person. I'll show you a successful person. I'll show you a committed person. Why aren't you focusing on these kids' interests and passions to drive, drive their engagement and their learning? So passion. Uh, one of our participants, and this hurt hurt me a bit for them to say it, but they were absolutely right. Uh, one of our participants said, is any, has ever dawned on anybody? Has anyone ever actually, actually acknowledged that 99% of the work that kids do in school is fake? And we're like, what? Yeah, it's fake. It's done for one person for one score or a grade or an assignment or a requirement. And then it's, it's thrown in the garbage. Why do you think, why do you possibly believe that most kids would give one rip about that and put forth any effort unless they like you personally, right? Why would you expect anything different? They're not doing anything real. So give them something real to do, right? We've got all kinds of problems and opportunities in our community. Give them something real to work on, to solve. And the third one was get them out in the community. They, they have to, the teachers can't do this by themselves. The community's got to help. 
So long story, I know, but um, but essentially then two of our school districts had been watching this play out in the paper and that, and um, two school board presidents came to me and said, we want, we want to start this school. We want to give you the sandbox to play in. And so Sean and I uh, uh, took positions with the school district and and started Iowa Big on the three premises, Passion Projects Community. That's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story. I like to say that, perhaps influenced by knowing your story, the best way to radicalize an educator is to make them, as an adult, go through a school day as a student. It's, it's, and I feel like this was formative for my thinking because uh, being a young person who was aware of, who became very interested in things like learning science and, and pedagogy, I became acutely aware of the mismatch between what was written in the books or just what we know about, and this is a point I want to come back to, um, neuroscience, for example, what we're, we've become aware of in the last f- a couple few decades and the way we're approaching education with our students. It is almost polar opposites. Um, and that is, that's what radicalized me personally. And I see that story over and over with educators. It's like, oh, I just became more mindful, more aware of actually what is the experience as a student, developing that empathy. It's the quickest way to radicalize someone. It's a wonderful story. Yeah, absolutely. And one of my, one of my colleagues um, uses pretty harsh language. He, he says, we're, we're committing malpractice. <laughs> we know the neuroscience says. We know what the learning it says about learning science and and to your point, you know, you talk to teachers who have to go back and get their recertification credit and take these college classes. They piss and moan just like the kids that they serve do. It's like, how can we not see this? But it's just, it's so ingrained and this is the way we've always done it that it's really hard for anybody to see it. Completely agree. Completely agree. So you touched on something um, which I'd like to focus on, which is your emphasis of community as one of your three values. When I think of Iowa Big, and I've been lucky enough to be aware of you all for a long time, it's been a source of inspiration in our design as well, um, that's what I think of, this culturally culturally relevant education, this community. Why is that so important in the student's education? Um, that's a great question, Garrett. Um, I, I think for us, community is the real context. You know, I, I'm a big believer that... Um, schools are so focused on content, we ignore context. Context is what makes content relevant. And in context is what helps you decide what it is you need to know and learn in that moment to keep moving forward. And so for us, community is um, on the economic side of things. Um, Cedar Rapids, Iowa isn't a place most people aspire to move to. Right. And oh, yes, you know, Denver, L.A., New York, Cedar Rapids. Right. And so one of the things is we want to make sure our kids, when they leave high school, even if they go off somewhere to to college, they know that they have a network and they know that they have people who care for them and that they know they have opportunity in our community. So that was kind of the economic side of doing it that way. Um, The educational side was just the embedding kids in the community and and helping giving them voice and allowing them to help us solve many of the problems that we face like every other community faces about inequities and social justice and um, caring for one another and you know finding opportunity in that so that's that's why it's so important for us makes sense makes sense 
Let's chat about another thing that comes to mind when I think of Iowa Big. Probably these are one and two in my brain. Um, is PBL project-based learning? Uh, I think they go hand in hand in many respects. This community, this community-focused projects. Um, but I know, I also know that Iowa Big has a structure of seminars to try to fill gra- fill gaps. Or uh, actually, I won't. I won't explain to you what, what its purpose is. But I'm just curious to hear. What do you think PBL is really good at? And then what's it less great at? What do we have to accommodate for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think the project-based, and some people call it experiential learning, um, that's got a lot of names now. Um, the point for us of project-based learning is making it real. Giving the kids a real context is, you know, we've talked a little bit about the the um, things that neuroscience have done for us in the past couple decades. One of them is the research showing that the teenager, the teen teenage brain and its development has to be engaged in something bigger than themselves for them to, to, to own it and to get excited about it. So for us, projects provide that real context and the messiness, um, the wicked problems kind of thing. We want so many of the kids that come to us, uh, think that all problems are black and white. They're fairly simple. Somebody knows the answer. You just got to find out who it is. And we want to put them in projects so they begin to realize, wow, there are always trade-offs. There are always opportunity costs to the decisions you make. Um, and projects don't always work out. And projects don't end up where you always want them to. And all these kind of things. Um, so that was the, uh, that's what we see as projects. The big distinction for us and, and most of what you read about traditional project-based learning is for us, the project has nothing to do with a culminating demonstration of learning or um, the assessment itself or the evaluation of the kids' learning. It is the, the work that the kids do along the way. That's what we document. That's what we um, reflect on and talk to the kids about because some of our projects are wildly successful and some crash and burn, just like they do in the real world. Um, Counterintuitively, the projects that crash and burn often have the deepest and richest learning for those kids, right? Because they can reflect on, wow, this thing went off the rails, what happened? And they're able to articulate all the things they did and didn't do that caused the project to derail. And then they go into the next project and they crush it. Right. And so if, if as soon as you put as soon as you say the project is the capstone, it's going to demonstrate to everybody what you know, uh, it's going to show us that you learned it. You have you have retreated back to traditional education and put all kinds of pressures on the kid that they think this has got to be perfect. And you know, I, I heard a podcast once where a, a record producer said uh, perfection's a second rate idea. And we believe that, too. I heard this is random, but I was listening to Elon give a tour of his, his rocket facility yesterday, and he said, um, "Well, all designs are wrong. It just depends on what degree they're wrong, right?" And that's true. That's true of, of many things. Like in the, some people may call this, you know, the beginning of infinity or infinite improvement. But that's just a fact of life. Truth or whatever that means is out there somewhere. But it's nearly impossible for us, perhaps impossible in many cases, for us to reach it. It's all about improvement over time and that's where learning occurs so i and i will say iowa big 
we agree with you on that 100% that you need to tag um, learning to the process and not the outcome. But that is, even in the progressive world of project-based learning, that's a radical stance. And I think the reason why is it's so hard to pull off. It's so hard to pull off where teachers have to be uh, you know, cognizant and following the, the process of a student. How the heck is that scalable? How is that practical advice for the average educator? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think um, most fall into the trap of they worry about the assessment and the evaluation first because that's the system they're coming from. That's the, That system values evaluation and numbers and proof, although I would argue that the proof they provide with a grade is pretty, pretty weak. Um, so it's, it's the, the hardest hurdle, the toughest hurdle is to get, to get educators away from thinking about, you know, having this tangible thing to show people, see, they did this and to start, um, to start looking for the more nuanced kinds of learning. And, and honestly, that takes, that takes what we're in our ninth year and we have, I have three staff members who've been with me the whole way. And I think they would tell you the same thing. And just in the last year or two, has it started to feel like we have a handle on it and that we, um, we kind of know now what we need to do next to solidify it. We made the conscious decision. I made the conscious decision uh, when we started big, the assessment, uh, and documentation was not where we were going to start. And that's where most reforms start. What's the assessment? How are we going to know? How are we going to evaluate this? Well, as soon as you do that, you box yourself in to the, to the old system. We're like, uh, we approached it with, I've got outstanding teachers. You know your content. You know your standards. You know if the kids met it or not. And I trust your judgment. Let's get these kids into experiences Let's get them reflecting on their learning. Let's getting them make the connections. And then then let's worry about how we're going to document this stuff. And so we're nine years in. Now we're at that point where we're really feeling comfortable in how we can do a better job of documenting for external people. To show let's them talk about those external people because you collect government funds, correct? Correct. How did you... Is <laughs> In my mind, you're a unicorn because... In many cases, even with detailed plans for assessment and project-based learning and, uh, you know, full compatibility, or as Rob Riordan would say from High Tech High, speaking the authorizer's language, even for people who are well-versed at that, they never get off the ground. They never are able to actually push and do something progressive within the traditional system. So more I'm just in awe. How did you pull off getting government funds and getting them to co-sign something this, this different and radical? Yeah, I think, you know, serendipity always plays a role in all of this. But um, the the Billy Madison project had way more power than Sean and I ever imagined it would have because all of a sudden you have 60 members of the community going, whoa, wait a minute, we need, we need this. We need to do something very different because what we have, as good as it was, isn't isn't good enough. And so we had some air cover. The superintendent and the board had some air cover that oftentimes they don't have. And it's very scary to, to step out and do this because it doesn't take long for somebody to think it's too crazy and to kill it. Well, we had 60 community members, influential, well-networked community members who could say, nope, this is our design. It's got to go forward. We had two courageous school board presidents who recognized the, that this needed to happen and uh, two superintendents 
who were willing to uh, take a little heat and allow us to do it. And so um, what we essentially said, <clears throat> well, the other, another factor is in 2011 or 12, the Iowa legislature passed a competency-based education law that said if you're a competency-based school, Carnegie units aren't relevant. You don't have to worry about Carnegie units. Well, they declared the law without any anybody at the DE knowing anything about how to do that, right? And so, honestly, we just uh, asked forgiveness, not permission. We just declared ourselves COMC-based. COMC-based laws there were, yep, we're COMC-based. That's what we're doing. Um, and so we that law allowed us to make jump that hurdle. And then our standards and our Iowa core standards, all the districts were working on what they called priority standards. So you take the 20 some English standards. What are the seven or eight standards that if those kids knew those really well and we we could document that they know them, that they would know the other 14 or 15, right? And so that turned standards from 356 down to a manageable number that they, we had to teach all of them, but we had to assess those, those priority standards. And the standards were such that um, the content, most of it, I know it's regressed a bit over the years, but most of it had little to do with content. Most of it was conceptual stuff. And so we just said, look, we're, hold us accountable for the standards. Kids still take standardized tests in that. We're just going to approach the standards a different way. We're going to teach it a different way. Um, and so that allowed us, those two things, that law and, and some courageous leadership, allowed us, gave us the sandbox and gave us enough air cover to, to get established. Let's talk about that for a second, because this is a huge flashpoint in the world of education, even in the world of progressive education, many people don't agree. Um, and that is the role of competencies versus content or, or content standards. Um, I think one behavior I've noticed is when when we approach more traditional teachers and they're confronted with the poor long-term retention of of the knowledge they're teaching their students, they will usually retort with something like, well, I'm teaching the student how to think, right? That's like a classic response to that somewhat depressing statistics for how much kids remember a few years out of school. Um, and something, a quote I like from from Brian Kaplan on this matter, he says, when we hand teachers an explicit goal and measure their success, we're disappointed. It's disappointing. So how should we believe teachers are better at achieving unmeasured afterthoughts, right? So all that to say, where do you think, or where's the balance of, of importance between competency-based instruction and content? Does content still have an important place in educational design? Yeah, absolutely. I think I go back to this idea of content versus context. Um, content is worthless, absence of context. I mean, it's literally without context, no content matters. But once you introduce a context for something, then the content becomes incredibly important, right? I'll give you a, a really simple example of context. You take a speech class in high school, you give a speech to the 20 other kids in your class, none of whom give a damn about what you're talking about, and you don't give a damn about what they're talking about. You're just trying to follow the algorithm to get the grade. That's a context, although not a very real one. Um, but, but the speaking skills in context 
The content really, really matters. Are you speaking to 10 people who are in your, you know, in your kind of worldview that they're going to be fairly supportive? Well, what is the content you need to know and understand about how you're going to deliver that information versus to 500 people in a workshop versus 20 people who think you're an, you're an idiot, right? You, all these contexts, um, add a, a richness and a depth that all of a sudden kids care a hell of a lot about how they sound and what their PowerPoint looks like and how their inflection looks is going to sound like when they understand the audience they're working with. And the audience is a real audience, right? And so I often get accused, oh, you don't care about content. You don't care if kids read. No, that, these things are incredibly important but they only have stickiness to your point. They only stick if I can apply them in a context, right? Um, so so I, I think in education, our biggest, um, the biggest thing we've done over the, over the years in the past is we've paid no attention to context. We assume that we teach the content in some kind of vacuum, in a fake context, and that the kids are going to know how to do it when they go out. Um, research shows learning doesn't transfer context very well, right? And so competency is about being able to perform in context, being able to take disparate pieces of content and information and knowledge and skill and put it together to make something happen in a particular context. So for me, the power of competency-based learning is putting kids in situations where they have to understand the content they need and how to get to it and how to learn it so that they can apply it and be effective in that context and get good at, um, at good at that. And then over time, slowly, um, you can begin to understand and develop a set of skills and content knowledge that allow you to more seamlessly transition from one context to the next. Right? So as, Someone, when I was your age, speaking to large groups was a, a difficult thing. I never allowed myself off my path. And I, I just, I was terrified somebody was going to ask me a question I didn't know the answer to. Because it was a new context and I didn't have the skills and the content knowledge to know how to do it. As a 55-year-old, I've done it so many times in so many contexts. and I've learned so much about how to do it. Not that I'm great at it, but I'm not afraid now of it going down a dirt road and then I, I can't get back to where I want to go. Um, and that's what we're trying to do with kids, right? I can't, you can't teach the content of, of that without putting kids in rich, real context. That, that's our position on it. Yeah. I love that. I a hundred percent agree. Um, you can make this, I think even more simple and tangible to educators when you say in science class we teach the importance of units that's like a huge thing we try to drill into the brains of kids you can't just say 47 it has to be 47 what degrees you know unicorns right it's all about units and it's similar with the facts and fragments we pick up from school you can't just say you know this battle happened in 1847 and have that be a fact that students remember if it's not tagged with the context the units it's of no relevance or future usefulness to to people's lives and tying that back into 
the cognitive science, the the learning science, uh, the, the brain science, whatever you want to call it, uh, tying that back into it. I think it's just having that approach, a traditional approach, is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the brain works. It's using analogy like a hard drive, assuming we can just pre-install knowledge in people's brains, but that's not the case. Instead, the human brain is is like a pathfinding machine. We, we connect things to other things, and then using the layman's language, the nodes of knowledge connect with other nodes, and we can only find that knowledge by traversing that path across the, the connections. And so if we're not connecting knowledge to things we already know and understand, it's really useless. There's no such thing as useful knowledge that exists in isolation. It's impossible. So yeah, that's anyway, that's my boring. rant. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly boring. It's like... I you talk to so many people, myself included, the skill set and the, the things I've had to learn and make connections with about leading a group of people that are so autonomous as this mm-hmm. and that are learner centered. I've never been trained on how to do that. I didn't go to school to learn that. Right. So, um, yeah, it's just that context is so important. And, you know, our Sean, my co-founder is our science teacher. And he says, the only thing, um, traditional math and science are doing is turning 80 90 percent of the kids off they hate science and math because the way we're teaching it it has no relevance it just it just seems like tedious work he's like shouldn't we have a an approach to science to get kids to appreciate it and enjoy it and then for the kids who want to be microbiologists we can dive them deep but why are we having all the kids learn content as if all of them are going to go be doctors of physics when only one in every thousand kids in your classroom are ever going to be phys- physicists, right? It's that kind of thinking. It's it's hard to get schools to get out of that. And the standards, honestly, just reinforce that model in a lot of ways. I love that point. We're training kids through the education system. We are training them for something. It's just extremely uncommon jobs, right? Like, uh, poets and you know historians and it's things that no one's ever going to be and you could even argue that it's poor jobs training for those things as well but how are we teaching kids to do the things that will of course be relevant no matter which field they they choose like these competency-based um things but also just more tactically uh, operating in ambiguous environments or with ill-defined parameters or revising mistakes or these things that will certainly be important whatever job they go to that's the stuff we just you know it's more important they get an a on the poetry exam right it's it's absurd that's what's so fun about asking people what do you need to know do and be like to be a successful citizen and adult never once and i've done this with a thousand people never once be an ap scholar have a 4.0 get a 35 on your act uh, read above grade level um, understand parabolas that those things never show up on the on the thing right because i think they know that certain professions and people need to know parabolas deeply other people they don't need to know right so yeah and i think it's it's an argument tough i think the other argument is often well since we don't know where the kids are going let's just scatter gun right give them all of it just in case they need it but to your point most of it they forget. And I think there's a common refrain in the education world that 
you know, education so much more than just training them for their future jobs. And I'll agree. I'll, I'll give them that point. But Absolutely. let's look at, I mean, I, I love education. I love learning. It's completely changed my life. That's why I'm in this industry. And it sounds like your story is the same. But when you look at the percentage of people who do enjoy these things that we're encouraging in the traditional education system, such as poetry or classical music or mathematics, these things that we think we're enriching people's lives. Let's compare that to rock music and like, right. And these other in sports and we're not actually, we're forcing kids in in many subjects through 13 plus years of exposure to this thing, thinking we're going to develop them culturally and this is going to be a lifelong passion. Really, how how common, how common is that truly? And most people I know, this is more of an anecdote, but most people I know who are interested in these quote unquote higher things develop the interest on their own because perhaps they admired an adult who did these things or they picked up the craft, you know, in an extracurricular. It's never because they're forced through music, music class in school. Rarely, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Let's chat about... Um, actually, one more tactical thing. I'm very curious how you pull it off. This is more selfish because this has been a big challenge through, for Sora through the years. Um, being a project-based school where you want to have these inbound projects from the community, I know that's a big emphasis um, of your school. How do you source that many projects? Seems like an impossible task. Yeah, um, that was a big question mark when we started because we knew we wanted to have real projects. And our first mistake was thinking teachers could do that. Um, In our first years, most of the projects were outbound where kids were coming up with project ideas. And we were finding community members that were excited about that too, which is a great, we continue to do outbound projects. It's a great thing. Um, But it dawned on us that, you know, we, we teach, uh, we treat our teachers like factory workers and they're no more connected to their community than anybody else because they're locked down in that school from 8 to 3.30. They don't know anybody. They don't have networks, right? So we brought in a person that's that was their job. And um, we learned something from the CAPS network uh, out from Blue Valley there in, in Kansas City area. Uh, when we were trying to get out and find projects, they said, look, make sure when you talk to businesses, they get scared. They want to help, but they get scared about this because the projects that come top of mind are core business projects for them and they can't go wrong, right? They, they've got to, and, and they're not going to give it to a 17-year-old and they shouldn't. So some of the things that we do is like, we don't care if you're Microsoft or a mom and pop shop, you have a resource line. When you do your strategic planning or whatever process you use, you are essentially deciding which projects and work go above your resource line and which ones are below it. Give us the project, the two or three projects directly below your resource line that you weren't going to work on, right? And give us a little bit of somebody's time there and let the kids get after it. That made a huge difference for organizations to go, okay, yep, now I know I got this, I got this, I got this. Uh, when we approach government and nonprofit, um, it's not a problem at all. They have so many projects and things to do with n- not the resources to do it. That's a great place to start. Just go to your city government, Parks and Rec, um, county. They always have projects. Uh, United Way, you know, uh, homeless shelters, they, they have tons of those. So what we thought was going to be a problem... Um, in terms of numbers is the opposite. 
we actually have more projects and we have kids to do them. And so it's, it, it gets really difficult to have to go back to a partner and go, Hey, we really liked your project, but nobody chose it. Right. So that's like, we didn't expect to have to have that conversation. Don't worry. You can um, send them our way in the future. <laughs> so our students yeah, will pick so, them up. <laughs> yeah, no. So that's, um, that's how that works. The biggest challenge, honestly, is, uh, and for all the right reasons, we have so many kids today that social good and environment and that is, is super important to them because, you know, people your age, you're the ones that are going to have to live with, with things that, you know, I, I probably won't see the worst of it, uh, that when you pre- present business related projects to them, they don't see the glitz to it. They, they want to do something that's more social good. And so we're, we're still trying to figure out how to find that balance so that kids can do, do the, the social good things they want and also get some experience and exposure to the possible careers that they're, they might be interested in. What percentage of projects, if you just had to ballpark it, actually do end up in some form going back into use for, from the, uh, the person who brought the problem to you? That go into use? Um, or in some form, it informed yeah. the final design or useful in some way. 80, 90%. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, um, and what we tell our partners is look, even if the kids get down the road and it falls apart, you've learned ways not to do it, right? You still have learned so that if, and when you pick this project up internally or give it back to us to try again, you're, you're farther ahead. Right. And so that's been right. Most of the time, honestly, this won't be a surprise to you. Um, the, the kids come up and do things that the, the adult partners couldn't have imagined. Right. Cause what we, we've also learned that, um, community members underestimate what high school kids can do and what they're capable of. And honestly, te- a lot of teachers do too, that, um, they, they're unconstrained by, um, some of the adult things about, well, gosh, if I say this or pitch this, it's going to sound dumb or God, that's, that idea seems way out there. The kids are like, Hey, here's where we can go. <laughs> Let's try that. They're not afraid of that. And, and I think uh, a lot of our partners are really seeing the value in that. And, and honestly, they, they get energy from the kids, you know, the kids get fired up about stuff and that. So. We're, we're running out of time here, but there's one question I'd, I've always wanted to ask you, and I, now I have the opportunity, so I'm going to do it, which is, why aren't you just a full high school? Why do you share time with other schools in the area? Yeah, that's a great question, Garrett. Um, you know, as, as progressive and open as our leadership was, uh, our community still wasn't ready um, for a full-scale school. Um, we have very good traditional high schools here. We've got very solid teachers. You know, a lot of kids are still successful. And so the energy wasn't there and honestly, a little bit of fear. So it was kind of, you know, for us, it was um, fail small, fail fast, fail forward, you know? And so we've been trying to grow our model. And the other challenge that we've had is the traditional system gets a complete pass on everything. We don't. Well, all the kids haven't been successful at big. This kid had a terrible experience, so you must be bad. But we don't get to talk about the 300 kids at your school who hate 
hated and don't ever want to walk into. Right. So we've we've had to fight a lot of that. We understand that's part of part of the game. Uh, I will tell you that um, the the one of our districts um, is is really trying to move in our direction, and we're thinking that the possibility, the real possibility exists in a year from now, we will have a high school magnet school in Cedar Rapids um, that's foundationally um, like big. So, so I think it's coming. It's just, uh, yeah, we'd love to have a, a, a full-time school. We think we could do so much with kids, but again, the context and what you can do in a given context, you have to take what they give you. Right. Certainly. When, when that happens, I'm, I'm headed to Iowa. I'm going to tour. <laughs> One question I always like to ask at the end, well, not always, but I try to fit it in, is if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing, maybe two things, I'll be generous today, but if you had to change just a a couple things about traditional schools, where would you spend that political capital? What would it be? Uh, Well, my first answer is really more conceptual, but I think our biggest challenge is paradigm. The traditional paradigm and the way the way they people see education is the biggest barrier. Uh, once you have a learner-centered paradigm, um, the whole world changes. So my my magic wand would be that the leaders and the teachers in in schools would would all of a sudden recognize this new paradigm and and understand that it's it's not better or worse than the old paradigm. It's just more relevant and it fits better, right? So that'd be my that'd be the one if it, if i had to do something you know more practical or you know structural i would i would make uh i would set it up so that high schools you couldn't teach a subject in isolation you had to teach you had to offer courses that were english and history or sociology and science together so i think that would be one step to start to break away this idea that my content's super important and kids need to know all of it when you get teachers from different disciplines together talking about what's important, like my team had to, um, they find out very quickly just how um, esoteric some of their standards are. When they can't answer the question, you tell me why everybody in the world needs to know this, and they can't do it. That's when things start to change. It's a wonderful place to leave it. So the last thing I will ask is if somebody, if one of our listeners wants to stay up to date or learn more about um, your work at Iowa Big, where should they go to do that? Yeah, great. Uh, We have a website. We just got a new one up, um, iowabig.org. And we're also present on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, Twitter and Instagram is at Iowa Big. Um, we, We try to provide project examples we have visit days things like that can easily be found on our twitter feeds and things like that thank you for listening to this episode of soar's learning lab check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning pedagogy and more